0: righty. hello everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So uh, we're gonna learn a lot about um, with, with with our interview today, and and I don't want to wait longer before I introduce him. So Nick Green, welcome to the show today.
1: Thanks for having me, Alejandro. Happy to be so, here.
0: So so Nick, let's 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 do a little bit of um, of walk through memory lane here. So for college, you went to Harvard, and then you started your your first business. You were doing internships at places like McKinsey. So why did you decide to take the leap of faith right away?
1: Well, I actually started my first company before I ever did an internship. Um, I, you know, I got to Harvard thinking I would go uh, become a lawyer eventually. Um, that was what success meant to me at the age of eighteen. And um, you know, after my freshman year, uh, was basically having tr- trouble getting any internship. So I stumbled into entrepreneurship because as a freshman or sophomore. Uh, you know, most companies aren't actually interested in hiring you. So other than pretty menial work, there aren't a lot of opportunities. And I said, you know, why don't I just go home? I want to be back in Minneapolis where I'm from for the summer. And I started teaching SAT courses. Um, and, you know, I came from a place where people didn't really have a lot of options for test prep. Uh, I got to, you know, I, when I saw the SAT for the first time, I was taking the SAT and I got to Harvard and saw uh, you know, a lot of my friends uh, or met a lot of people that had uh, been studying for the SAT since very early. So the idea of the first business was, you know, let's kind of open the opportunity to prep for these exams to uh, folks in places like Minnesota, where I grew up and, and, you know, all over the country that may not have had the opportunity otherwise. And, uh, you know, after that first summer, I ended up working with about 250 kids. And, uh, you know, as a as a business making t- tens of thousands of dollars, but more importantly, uh, you know, seeing the impact I could have on uh, hundreds of kids' uh, futures, uh, and really, you know, got got hooked on entrepreneurship from there. So uh, I built that business over about five years, um, starting that that freshman year in college, uh, to uh, eventually hiring other undergrads from Harvard and then uh, other schools. Uh, and uh, you know, by the time I did that internship at McKinsey, my business on the side, quote unquote, uh, was already uh, you know quite successful and to be honest, the only reason I did the, the, the internships was because it wasn't a type of success that I had, was familiar with, right? It didn't fit my conventional kind of model for success. And so, uh, you know, it really up until my senior year, I still thought, you know, I would go do investment banking or go do consulting. And, you know, this little fun thing on the side would would just be that on the side. But uh, when I really felt into uh, uh, what I wanted to do with my future and having you know, invested As much time, basically, as I'd been in college on this business, I decided, hey, I got to give it a try. And uh, and McKinsey was a great place and an awesome experience. And they were nice enough to say, look, we agree with you. Give it a try. We'll we'll wait a year and you can decide if you want to come, uh, you know, be an analyst then. And uh, I guess they say the rest is history. Uh, It was a a, a bumpy road from there as an entrepreneur. But, um, you know, once I was in, uh, it was it was impossible to go back.
0: I hear you, and the name of this business that was Ivy insiders that was Ivy insiders, yeah really cool, really cool. so you grew that business to like over five hundred locations forty three states, and this was all in in under three years so so with this business uh what was it just like yourself from like a founding team perspective or or what was the founding team behind
1: the business? It was just me, and like I said it was it was I call it accidental entrepreneurship, right because I really didn't, and to begin with, just because I didn't want to get a real summer job or wasn't able to get a good internship. And, you know, then I said, hey, I, I you know, developed this curriculum. Uh, I called it an SAT game theory. The whole idea was to turn the SAT into a game. And then I did the same thing for the ACT and eventually SAT twos and AP tests. And uh, I actually, it's interesting. I, I was always pretty good at test taking, but I remember there were kids in my, in my graduating class in high school that were every bit as smart as me, some that were smarter that weren't good at test taking. And so I, I, kind of tried to reverse engineer why why was I good at taking the test, and what I, what I figured out is I, I kind of approached it like a game, and I found I found it like a puzzle, and uh, you know presenting that to students, I think took it away from this realm of being this evaluation of your you know potential or your intelligence or anything else, and, and made it something that was kind of simple and fun. So once I had that curriculum, I said, hey. Uh, why don't I hire other kids that, you know, did really well on the test or good test takers, went to schools like Harvard and, and send them back to their hometowns to do the same uh, the same thing. And so that was the model. It was basically a micro franchise model. And, you know, it was really cool as we we helped tens of thousands of kids get better scores on the test. We charged you know a third of what Princeton Review and Kaplan were charging. Um, we added what we call a no empty seats policy where any seat that wasn't filled in the class was given to a student for free who couldn't afford it. Um, and then we also help these, you know, undergrads from, from Ivy league schools go back and, uh, learn what it would like to be an entrepreneur. Uh, so, you know, we gave them kind of a business in a box, uh, funded their marketing, taught them how to do sales, taught them how to teach the courses. Um, and then they, they actually ran their own businesses for the summer. So uh, as you said, we, we grew to about 500 branches um and uh I worked on it for about 3 years after school but it was almost 4 years during school so you know all in it was actually closer to 6 or 7 years um and uh and then we we got an offer to be acquired by a company called Revolution Prep based out here in LA and uh that's what brought me to the west coast
0: and and before we kind of like talk about the the M&A process how did you guys capitalize this business
1: you know it, again I was a solo founder and I had the the sort of good fortune of having zero opportunity cost of my time, right? I was, I was building that business while I was in school. So it's not like I needed a salary. Um, and because it was a services business, um, you know, the, 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 the capital requirements are actually quite low. So I was able to be profitable from that first summer, basically roll some of the profits back into uh, continuing to grow the business. Um, eventually we did build an online component where we use those summer branches to seed online test prep during the school year. Um, but I never raised a dime of outside capital, um, and you know what I'll say is it was it was in some ways a very uh, a very empowering and and uh, satisfying thing, which I didn't really even know at the time because I had no reference point. Um, But it was also a very lonely road. You know, I didn't have uh, investors and, and mentors there around me, and I didn't have any co-founders who were in the same boat as me. So um, you know, as I tell the story now, it sounds like it was this you know upward trajectory. Seven years, sold the business. Uh, yada yada yada. The truth is, I, I feel like I failed my way to success in many ways in that business. Um, you know, I had, despite studying economics at Harvard, n- zero real business experience. Uh, I can tell you, the, the classroom doesn't translate at all into what it takes to be a, a really scrappy entrepreneur. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like I had to unlearn uh, the the keys to success uh, that I had learned in you know uh, thirteen years of academics you know academics is all about following the rules checking the boxes um you know being really really uh uh i would say almost being just risk averse right not 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 taking not taking big risks and entrepreneurship you got to break the rules you got you know color outside the lines and you have to be really comfortable uh with uh with discomfort and with being out of your depth and with, uh, with confronting failures so uh yeah I like to say I, I failed my way to success and 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 learned a lot in the process and uh, and one thing I definitely learned is after that business, I didn't want to do it solo again. So that was right. one of the things before I started Thrive. Is I just knew I wanted to work with with great co founders who I could learn from and and you know be, be on this uh, you know, crazy roller coaster of entrepreneurship uh, together with.
0: Got it. And and the MA process for for this company for Ivy Insiders, like what? At what point did you decide? Hey, it's time to to explore this option.
1: You know, it was it was inbound. Um, to be honest, we had we had uh, grown fast, and I think got on the radar screen of some of the bigger competitors and uh, you know started getting some calls. And again, I had zero experience um, with with m um, and a. Uh, and and still had you know vision for how I was going to take this business to move to the online side. Um, we were doing some stuff with online tutoring during the school year. Um so you yeah, know, I actually at that point said, hey, I think I should explore, you know, I should explore the, the M&A route since there's interest um, from some of the bigger competitors. And I should also think about raising money to actually build a real technology platform. And this was back, you know, um, online video still wasn't, uh, wasn't, wasn't great. Uh, we were doing uh, our tutoring online over Skype, and we actually used a dual camera setup where we had this webcam on a, on a little, uh, uh, basically a little uh, neck. That you could put over a piece of paper and the tutor could write things on the paper that the student could see online uh, but it was all very early and uh, we wanted to build a, a custom flash interface to um to uh to uh, to kind of take this tutoring uh set up to the next level and uh so what i ended up doing was running kind of a dual process where i said hey i'm going to uh, talk to folks about raising money and i'm going to entertain these these m a conversations um, and that proved to be really effective. Uh, you know kind it wasn't like I was being highly strategic when I did that, but the fact that I had options to you know cap capitalize the business at a decent valuation and and build something from there, you know really did on me getting me some leverage in the in the m and a conversations. and and then ultimately on the on the m and a side, you know it it was uh, it, it for me was just about gut feeling and fit for what was going to be best for the for the business. Um, you know, I talked to some of the bigger guys and just knew it wasn't going to be a culture fit, you know, certainly not a place I wanted to spend a few years doing an earnout. Uh, and then met the uh uh the folks at at Revolution Prep. Um was co-founded by two guys who are themselves uh you know entrepreneurs, had been building that business for a decade, uh, and uh really saw them as people that I could learn from. So uh, you know, it was kind of a it was they they were a bigger company, obviously, but it was felt like a little bit of a startup devouring another startup. Um, in the sense that I got to go in and and still be relatively early in their business and and able to have an impact, and uh, their their company was also very mission driven. They were not only on the test prep side, but also building K twelve K twelve software um, and working with districts like LAUSD that had many low income students to you know, use technology to improve learning outcomes. So uh, that was a really inspiring, and, inspiring and, and fun experience too. I spent eighteen months there um, and. Um, and, and then you know, rolled off in, in 20, uh, I guess it was 2013.
0: Got it. And, and the terms of this transaction, were they public?
1: They were not public. No. Got it. Got it. Got it. So it was, right. and it was a, sm- it was a small transaction. Uh, you know, it wasn't, um, it, it wasn't, uh, something that would have created uh, venture returns for, for, for VCs. Um, but it was certainly life changing for me, um, especially at the age of 26, and especially owning hundred percent of the company. So it was a, uh, like I said, it was, it felt like a huge success, uh, uh, which in many ways I remember at the time feeling was very undeserved because, uh, you know, it felt like the, the path to get there had been very rocky.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And so you were for a bit with revolution prep, I mean, doing the, um, vesting and, and resting uh, as they would say, and then you decide to leave and you go to Launchpad to become kind of like an entrepreneur in residence for them for like seven months or so. So. So tell us, walk us through like this decision and, and shift in your career.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, uh, I spent a year and a half at Revolution um, doing my earn out. I would say it was a, it was more investing than resting, um, but I feel like I learned a lot. They were moving at a very fast clip. Had had just ranged a pretty large round of private equity uh, when they bought us, and um, and so there were some really interesting developments happening in that business. Uh, but ultimately decided. Uh, you know that I that I wanted to be an entrepreneur again, and so I, I had a, a friend who I knew from college, and had really had become closer to in LA, who was the managing director of a startup accelerator called Launchpad LA. His name is Sam Teller, and he's you know a brilliant investor, very connected in the LA startup scene at a time when that scene was just kind of getting going. This is you know 2012, 2013, um, and uh, and so over the course of six months. Um, went into to launchpad and basically used it as just a lab for me to think about businesses that i could start uh, talk to other entrepreneurs do some angel investing uh, and you know over the course of that six months i probably saw 500 companies i was on the investment committee for for the for the accelerator um, invested in probably a dozen myself um, and didn't see any that you know were businesses that i necessarily wanted to work on uh, until i met my co-founder Ganar um, and he actually came in to pitch, uh, pitch me on a concept he was calling shop drive. Um, and the idea was to basically build group on for healthy food, to have buying events where people could buy, uh, healthy products at wholesale prices. Um, and you know, business model was very different than what we ultimately, where we ultimately landed with thrive. But the vision was exactly what it continues to be today, which is make healthy living accessible to every American family. And, um, you know, I love telling the story that by the end of that, that first meeting, I remember I was pitching him on uh, working on it together. And so, um, you know, we had a a number of meetings after that and, and he was, we had very complimentary skill sets. He, you know, had a lot of vision and just a huge, um, uh, a huge heart and that was driving this, this mission to make healthy living accessible, which really resonated with what I wanted to do on my, uh, my second, uh, my second at bat. And, uh, you know, health, health and wellness is probably the one thing that's more fundamental than education, right? human health and, uh, and at a, at a personal level related, um, you know, related very much. My, I, my, uh, I, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a place that, uh, you know, you look at the Midwest, um, not necessarily the healthiest part of the country, um, and happened to have a mom who was really, really focused on, on our health. Um. My mother's Mexican American, and uh, and on that side of the family, there's a lot of type two diabetes and um, and and, uh, and other lifestyle diseases um, that uh, she saw in her family, and was really determined to not be an issue for our family. So I had a personal connection to it at that level, and just was really excited by the mission. And uh, it was uh, uh, best decision I ever made. But also, uh, you know, signing up for something that has turned out to be uh, a bigger challenge than I even imagined at the time.
0: Got it. So, so Thrive Market uh, obviously is born. This is the um, the most recent company, and what you're leading after meeting your your co-founder. No, that was that was pitching you the concept. So, how many how many co-found? What was the founding team then for for the company for Thrive Market?
1: Yeah. So we we ended up having there's four of us, four co-founders. Um, so Gunnar and I met and spent you know probably four months iterating on the business model. You know, how are we actually going to take these high-quality natural organic products that you find in places like Whole Foods uh, at 25 to 50% markups, how are we going to take those and make them uh, affordable at or below the price of conventional equivalents? That was our goal. And one idea initially was to do this Groupon model, right, where you could pool resources, buy with a wholesale account, but it would take, you know, two to four weeks for people to get their products. And that's not the way people want a grocery shop. So, uh, you know, we studied a lot of other models that were out there where we ultimately Got really inspired was the Costco model. Um, You know, Costco charges a simple annual membership fee, um, and then they take all their margin there instead of on the product sales. And what we realized is that if you, you know, we just created a wholesale account ourselves directly with the brands, um, we can, and then we pass along all the savings to our members. uh, As long as we're making enough margin on the membership, we can take no margin on the product sales, and that ends up actually bridging that twenty-five to fifty percent price gap and you know, finally making the organic product uh, affordable at the price of the conventional one. So you know, the numbers really worked. Um, we knew it was going to take really significant scale to get there. Because we're not uh, high margin on the product sales, uh, it was going to require vertically integrating in ways that very few e-commerce companies do. Um, and uh, you know, like I said, that there's been a lot of challenges in that, in that element of business. You know, this is not just a technology company. It's also a very operationally intensive business. Um, and then we also knew we needed to create a, a real brand experience. So our third co-founder, Kate Mulling, um, had come over from, uh, she was at Refinery29 quite early on, and then had been the editor-in-chief at the Chalkboard Magazine, uh, which is uh, kind of one of the original health and health wellness lifestyle blogs. And so she came on board and, and was very instrumental in driving the brand early on. She's the one that convinced us to change the name from Chop Tribe to, the Chop Tribe to Thrive Market. Um, and then our fourth co-founder, Sasha Siddhartha, As a serial entrepreneur himself, uh, Stanford Computer Science and Economics uh, had been at Microsoft for seven years, and was basically the most brilliant uh, startup CTO uh, in in the LA tech community at the time. Who just happened to be rolling off his last venture. Um, And I remember um, basic, more or less, getting down on my knees, begging him to join the team. Uh, He he had first said, uh, "Let me invest instead," but we didn't accept no for an answer. And um, you know, he's been uh, just a, a, an amazing partner to work with. So, uh, yeah, four co-founders, uh, and it's, uh, and, and, again, you know, night and day to my first experience because I was a solo co-founder, but it's been just amazing to have the support of people who are aligned in the mission and bring very different skill sets and backgrounds to the table.
0: Really cool. And, and originally you guys started with kind of like, um, co-founder and, and co-CEO structure and, and you, uh, most recently, I think it was like last year, you became the sole, the, the sole CEO of the, of the entity. So what did you learn from having a co-CEO type of structure?
1: Well, the first, the first thing I learned in general is that, you know, it, basically, if you have a high growth startup, uh, what that business, like the business is changing, basically transforming every six months. And that requires, as co-founders, uh, a lot of flexibility in what you're going to do and what your role looks like. Um, and so at the beginning that meant for kind of everyone, you're, you know, there's a little bit of divide and conquer, but it's also, everyone's kind of wearing a ton of hats. And then as you, as the business scales, you start to, or you have to basically, uh, be really clear and really honest with yourself about where your areas of strength are. And then how do you fill in the gaps to bring stronger people in, in each of the areas where you can no longer scale. And so we were really fortunate in those early days to have a lot of leverage from the fact that there was four co-founders, four people who were deep in the business, uh, you know, major not just equity stake but just emotional stake in its success. And I think uh, we wouldn't have succeeded without that. But you know, the business, uh, and I'm skipping over a lot here, but because we grew so fast so early, what each of us was going to be able to actually do scalably changed very quickly. So you know, Kate actually rolled off full time, uh, like stopping full time in the business. Um, about a year in. Um, and she loved the early stage, but she wasn't the the person that wanted to be managing a huge team as we uh as we you know navigated growing the business uh in kind of the growth phase. Um and for you know for Gunnar and me, uh, as I said, we had very complimentary skill sets. Um and so I was quite operational, I was focused on fundraising. Uh Gunnar was really focused on building our influencer program and doing partnerships um, and telling the story of the business and doing, and, and working on some aspects of marketing, we overlapped on marketing quite a bit. Um, and so it was a really, really powerful partnership for the first, uh, for the first two years. Um, and of course, as we scaled each of those areas that we thought we were really good at, we started finding other people that were, that were replacing them until, uh, you know, I had a lot of the executive team reporting into me, uh, and Gennar was really focused on the partnership side. And so it made sense. You know, it's a very natural thing. And as that, as that happened for at some point, it the, it was, became more of me being solo CEO and, uh, and it made sense for Gennar to be focused on strategy and partnerships and mission. Uh, so he was in a chief strategy officer role. Um, and then more recently he actually rolled off of that role and is now on the board and no longer day to day, uh, either, uh, but still, you know, very active in helping to drive the strategy of the business. Um, so Uh, It's been a real learning experience for me, um, and uh, I feel very, very fortunate that I think all of us as co-founders were pretty intellectually honest about where our strengths were. And even though I'm technically, I'm the CEO right now, I feel like my role is really chief facilitator, right? There's nothing anymore in the business that I can do better than the executives who report into me. Um, So, you know, my major role, I, 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 I like to think of myself as the most humble person in the company, at least I hope I am. Uh, because I've I've had to recognize everything that I thought I was great at, there's someone better at, and you know, my role is to make sure we get those right people in the right spots.
0: Got it, got it. And and I and I I believe I I came across this um this story. I heard that that during the early days, you guys were it it was just growing. I mean, you were talking about it. It grew quite fast. But you had this workspace that was like 2,500 square feet, and all of a sudden the demand was. Uh, out of control and you guys started to move like the containers to your own houses and, and your garages because you could no longer keep up with the orders. so so ha- tell us about this experience:
1: Yeah well first before, before I get to that that success, which itself as you as you sort of alluded to created some challenges, um, let me first say you know the first year of the business before we launched uh, had all the makings of a colossal failure. Uh, Gunnar and I had each invested hundreds of thousands of dollars of our own business, of our own of our own cash. Uh, before we brought Sasha in, we had uh, invested in an outside consulting group to build the website. That was a complete flop, um, and we actually were rejected by dozens of VCs in LA, in New York, and San Francisco. So I don't want anyone to believe that you know that that my second at bat was a smooth ride to success. Uh, it was every bit as bumpy uh, as the first, as the first business. And I think that's, you know, if you want to kind of distill lessons, like that's just the nature of entrepreneurship. Um, but we ultimately got really, really lucky in a sense, because, uh, the influencers who we had been talking to about promoting for the business, um, as we are struggling to raise, raise funds and these, you know, uh, VCs in very affluent parts of the country weren't really understanding the mission of the business. Um, you know, these influencers who were bloggers and YouTube stars and Instagrammers with huge audiences all over the country were saying, hey, "Like, w- what's going on? We get it. We understand the mission. We know the audience and the market is out there. Why don't we invest?" And it was this massive, you know, inflection point, turning point, whatever you want to call it, when we decided to open up our convertible note to these influencers, many of whom had never done a private investment before. Um, and you know, we raised our first million uh, dollars in twenty-five to fifty thousand dollars chunks. Uh, we ultimately brought in over uh, 200 investors in our first eight and a half million dollars, um, with uh, you know very few, inst- very little institutional support. Uh, and the reason we grew so fast was because those same influencers who I mean, now were investors in the company went out and told their audiences. So um, you know, our, our first office was a little bit than 2,500 square feet. It's probably about six thousand square feet, um, but it was basically a converted, uh, like it was a converted garage. Um, so it had like the big garage doors. Uh, and we uh, built our warehouse in the center of that office. Um, so you know, we were basically working along the perimeter uh, during the day, and then packing boxes at night. And you know, within a few weeks, we were turning that warehouse over uh, every day and a half. We ended up putting storage containers in the driveway. We were the, the, the hated by all the neighbors uh, because we our parking was taking up every uh, all the space. We had FedEx trucks lined up outside of the house. I mean, it was just total total craziness. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was probably three months in, we, uh, we hired our SVP of supply chain, uh, John Winkles, who is a, uh, former director of supply chain at Kroger. Um, and this is a guy who'd done million plus square square foot warehouse builds, heavy automation. We, we truly had no business hiring him except for that. He, uh, like a lot of people before and since him really cared about the mission. Um, I remember him coming in and, uh, I think he probably was all he could do not to, not to turn around and walk the other way the moment he saw our operation, but, uh, fortunately, uh, was able to overcome the, 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 the amateur hour and, um, get us on track. We launched a, a 40,000 square foot, uh, fulfillment center, uh, about probably a month and a half after he came in on board. Um, so he stood that up very fast. And then, um, you know, we now have over 800,000 square feet of, of space uh, across facilities in Reno, Nevada and uh, Batesville, Indiana. So it's uh, come a long way in the last four years.
0: Really cool. And we'll talk about the, um, the fundraising in just a bit. But I want to uh, d- dive in a little bit or dig deeper into the influencer growth hack that you guys uh, did. So you were talking about it that you got the um, in the hundreds. Um, but the influencer concept is, is somewhat new. Right. I think that especially with with social media, it has it has exploded the, this concept. So for the listeners that are that are really uh, out there right now listening to, to our conversation here, what kind of pieces of advice would you share with them about engaging influencers?
1: Well, I think the first thing is that you have to engage them authentically and you have to be engaging authentic influencers. And, um, you know, every influencer, if they built a big audience on social, that doesn't happen by, by accident. So they are authentic about something, right? People are following them because they are experts in something. They are leaders in something. They are thought leaders in something. And you got to find the influencers who actually are relevant for, for whatever you do. And if they aren't, you know, we, we had some celebrities that invested in the, in the business. And I can tell you, we don't get nearly the impact from a celebrity tweeting about us as we do about one of our health and wellness influencers, or as we do from one of our health and wellness influencers blocking about us. So it really starts with finding the influencers that are credible for what you do. That you know when they talk about what you do, not just when they talk about something random, people will listen uh, and they'll care and they'll have trust. Um, so you know finding those authentic influencers is really key. Um, and then for us, it really serves as a great test of like how authentic is our business, right? Because these influencers, unlike the investors that we have pitched, really do understand the space. They understand the psychology of their customer uh, or their audience. And many of them are themselves kind of in the, you know, in like will be in the, in the, in the, in the audience, and uh, in the target target customer set, you know, our best influencers are bloggers. Our top influencer, uh, has a, a blog called wellness mama. And, you know, she's a 30 year old mother of, of six who lives in rural Kentucky or lived in rural Kentucky. And, um, uh, and was struggling to make healthy, uh, living possible for her family and started this blog to to share her experiences and share her insights and wisdom with others. So, uh, you know, it was a really good litmus test for, are we on the right track with our business? Um, and so the, I would say that the first thing is you've got to find those authentic influencers. you got to make sure they actually connect with your business and care about it. If you're having to just pay them and it's a completely transactional uh, relationship, um, you know, that's likely to show through in the promotion. Um, and it's likely to not have the same kind of impacts, uh, particularly long-term. Uh, building uh, and and driving customer acquisition. Um, And then I'd say the other thing that we did that was really unique is that we actually got them investing in the business. Um, So they were on the same side of the table as us became partners in the business real stakeholders. Um, And then we actually if they invested, let them take a portion of their affiliate commissions in equity. So when they promoted, of course, we were going to give them upside in the promotion. But we said, Hey, how about we give that upside in the form of additional equity in the company? And so that just, you know, really doubled down on creating alignment between the influencers and between us, uh, because they were real believers in our business and aligned to it authentically. They were you know super excited, uh, to get, uh, to, to, to build their equity position. Um, and it really ended up turbocharging our acquisition, uh, in a way that, you know, we, we got to probably a $30 million run rate without spending anything on, on paid media outside of the influencer channel. So that was, that was our sole uh, sort of one one trick pony, if you will, uh, because it was so effective. Really
0: cool, really cool, and 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 I'm sure you know. Talking about the the acquisition and, and the customers, you've probably learned quite a bit on on membership models, right? And 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 retention, I, I think it's everything. So, what have you learned about retention?
1: Well, retention starts. It starts at the at the beginning. Right. And in the same way as I would say on the influencer side, it was important to get authentic influencers who really cared about the lifestyle and believed in the mission and, and could speak about it credibly. Um, getting high quality customers who like actually are having a problem solved uh, by your service is is the key. Um, you know, I think you know, there's always this debate of whether good customers are born or made, and it's it's obviously both. But if you don't start with someone that for whom you already saw a really meaningful problem, um, it's really hard to com- turn that person into a good customer. And we we haven't always done that right. Uh, I know there were times in kind of the heady early days where we would you know bring someone in with a really deep discounted offer, or we'd give them a free sample to start the trial, or we'd sort of you know camouflage the the, the membership so that you know kind of the, the gym club model style where you know you're hoping that people will just passively uh, continue to, to stay on board rather than churn. And you know we've, we've learned over and over and over again that that is not the way to build a high-quality business. And so we've become extremely disciplined about um, the types of promotions that we use on the front end, the, uh, uh, the quality metrics that we look to, to to be leading indicators of how a member is going to perform, um, and just real transparency about how the membership works, why it's valuable, and let people self-select into the membership and you know that what we found is that that creates the foundation to have high retention and then the rest comes down to just delivering overwhelming value you know you hear i think that people talk about the 10x rule where you've got to be doing something 10x better than the next best competitor well if you're if you're if you're charging a membership fee i think it almost even has to be more than that you've got to really deliver value and so we've been maniacal about just iterating on the product experience iterating on the user experience uh, uh, iterating on our catalog, um, you know, we we call ourselves the unAmazon in the sense that Amazon's going to carry you know a hundred almond butters. We only want to carry the top five almond butters. We want to curate instead of having heavy assortment, and so using that as a source of value. Um, and then I think the other thing for us that's been really huge is creating value for our members that goes beyond just utility. You know, yes, you're going to get great prices on organic products. Yes, you're going to make the membership feedback and savings, and you're going to discover new products and you're gonna make your healthy lifestyle easier, but you also uh, are supporting carbon neutral shipping. You're also supporting zero waste fulfillment centers. Um, You're also each membership sponsors a membership for a low income family. And so we've tried to also create a community that reflects our values for the reason that we started this business, which is creating access and creating uh, to to more people to healthy living and creating a more sustainable future for our planet. Uh, And we've tried to bring people into that world where um, they align to that at an emotional level. Feel like they belong to a better way of doing things, um, and uh, you know I think when it comes time to renew, they're making that decision not only based on the utilitarian value that they've gleaned over the prior year, but also based on the the, uh, the sense of membership in a community of higher values.
0: Got it. Really cool. Really cool. And and you were talking about I mean we've we've touched a little bit shifting gears and and talking about the fundraising. You you touched on this uh, in uh, earlier, no? But but at what point were you like, hey, I'm not bootstrapping this one. Uh, we're going to raise money, and we need to raise it right now.
1: I mean, we knew we would have to raise money, right? This is a, it's an operationally intensive business because of the low margin structure. We had to vertically integrate on the fulfillment side. Uh, we had to do we're, we do a largely direct procurement from our vendors, which requires. Uh, some strong technology, as well as um, you know, manual endeavors. Um, we knew that we wanted to basically do bespoke work on the influencer side, which cr- required basically creating an internal agency. We knew as we started to do paid media that we weren't going to be outsourcing that because we couldn't be paying out a transaction fee on the, on the media costs. So, you know, the, the economics of our business and the challenges of, of the e-commerce uh, required us to to you know it put us in a place where we knew we were going to raise tens of hundreds of millions of dollars if we were going to get this business to scale. Um, yeah. So it wasn't a question of if it was really just a question of when. And I think the uh, you know the 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 challenge for us obviously was um, when we went out to the institutional investors, um, you know they they just they just didn't see it. Um, and so that was a huge, I mean, even if we had convinced some of those uh, those investors to invest, it wouldn't have been the right thing. Because they didn't, they didn't really believe in what we were doing. Um, they didn't get it at a, at a visceral level. And you know, even though when we raised our Series A and our Series B, we did raise from institutional investors. It set the tone for us in making sure we were bringing on people that were truly aligned to the vision that we had, um, yeah. and um, and really, you know, shared shared the values of the business.
0: So, so uh, Nick, how much capital have you guys raised uh, to date?
1: Uh, we've raised close to two hundred million dollars. Got it. Got it. And, and you were
0: talking about some of the influencers coming in. I mean, your cap table literally looks like you went to the Oscars and you started, you pull up your slides. I mean, it's unbelievable. You have people like Demi Moore. You also have John Legend, Deepak Chopra, Tony Robbins. I mean, on the, on the, it's unbelievable. On the VC side, you have investors like Greycroft, E Ventures, Kapoor Capital. So, so tell us how you found them and, and how you closed them as investors.
1: Well, on the influencer side, it's it's a very small world, right? A lot of these health and wellness influencers know each other. Um, a lot of celebrities know each other. And so um, we sort of got the ball rolling. And then really, the story and the mission kept that snowball building. And um, people that care about this, this space, that care about access, that believe in democratizing access to healthy living, uh, came on board, you know, and it kind of drove. So it was an outbound process initially, but rapidly became an inbound process. Um, and those were small checks, right? So we have you know hundreds of people that combined probably invested, you know, less than $10 million total in the business. Um, and then we have a few investors that invested, you know, dramatic you know, on the institutional side that invested dramatically more. So uh it was uh I, I would say with the, you know, with this, with the celebrities, they kind of uh talked talked to one another and and wanted to get on board and have provided a certain type of uh support that's been really valuable. The influencers have provided that health and wellness influencers have provided huge support. It's been really valuable and also told people about it. Um, And then, you know, at the institutional side, I think it's uh, once the business starts, a business starts having success, that game becomes very easy to play. Right? The the early stage is inherently speculative. And, uh, you know, it's do they do they believe it or do they believe the story or not? Uh, once you have the numbers to prove it, you know, it's really, it gave us a lot of optionality to pick the right institutional partners. And, uh, great has been amazing uh, data settle. Uh, one of the, one of the founding partners is on our board. Um, and, uh, and then in partners, uh, or the the group, which invested or drove our series B, um, has been uh, an incredible partner as well. that um, is the largest investor in the company.
0: Really cool. Really cool. And, and obviously it took some, um, some rejections to get this cap table together. You, you were, you were alluding to it before that you were rejected quite a bit. So just out of curiosity, so that our people listening, you know, they, they, they really understand that you need to get rejected before you get to the yes. How many investors reject rejected you?
1: I mean, it was at least 50 BCs back at the seed round. Um, and you know, even, uh, even once the, once the business was on a rocket ship, there's still rejections. You know, it's it really, uh, and so, and then you, what you discover too is you end up rejecting VCs and 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 other in, investors because they're not the right fit for you. So I don't look at any of that. I you know there was a time when it was very very hard, especially when I felt like the business was at existential risk. Um, But you know that pang of rejection, I think you know, starts to lessen when you realize uh, whether it's you or it's them. uh, If it's not the right fit, it's not the right fit, and. Yeah. Um, if a business is going to be successful, uh, you know, yes, you need capital, but you also need capital from the right kinds of people who are going to add value in other ways um, and are going to be are really aligned with where you want to take the company.
0: Got it. And I think that rejections also they they help, you no, know, in terms of like feedback and how you can optimize the the story and perhaps some holes that you haven't thought about. So in your case, did you? Kind of like go back or brainstorm with the team, or took a look at at your deck and and perhaps tweaked it a, a little bit based on what you were hearing. If if there were certain
1: patterns, yeah, I I think it's it's both. You pick the you pick you uh, you iterate on the sales pitch, right? Because you may not be communicating effectively uh, what what the business is. The biggest thing there for me, and this has been like a lesson as a you know, CEO and communicating to my em- employees and executive team as well as in fundraising, it's just like maniacally simplifying, um, you know, distilling things down, not, not clouding the picture any more than you need to. Um, even though investors say they want want data and they want support at the end of the day, they also want a really simple narrative for why it works. So that was the biggest lesson there. Um, I think the other thing, like you said, is we're getting feedback about, you know, some of the areas of the business is going to be challenging and, uh, you know the investors who rejected us early on. Part of it was they didn't see the opportunity, right? If you're a VC living in San Francisco with Whole Foods all around you and plenty of disposable income, you're not viscerally experiencing what it's like to be a middle-class mom in Middle America. Um, but I think another big part of it was they did see the challenges of building a scaled e-commerce platform at very low margins. And so a lot of those challenges they brought up to us were things we were underestimating, and it was very is really valuable feedback that. You know, prompted us to make some of the early hires um, on the merchandising side, on the operations side, um, and you know, we still made a lot of mistakes uh, uh, sometimes, uh, in spite of warnings. Um, right. But we were able to at least uh, heed some of those warnings and and use them to you know, bolster the business. And I think the you know big lesson there is whether it's from in the fundraising process or anywhere else, like entrepreneurship, uh, you've got to be facing the facts. Um, like you are going to sink or swim, and you have everything on the line. Um, and, uh, you know, you can't deny gravity. So anything that is true, you have to be open-minded, intellectually honest enough uh, to recognize and then and then incorporate. And being, uh, I call it being reality-based. Um, and it, it sort of sounds like a simple concept, but it's actually really hard to do. Uh, I think all of us, to varying degrees, are, um, you know, creating different stories in our heads to protect our egos and avoid pain and avoid confronting challenge. And, um, you know, for us, the, we, we, we have a culture of, of, of feedback internally. It's a business now. And I can tell you as, as co-founders and for me as a CEO, um, getting candid feedback and being receptive and acting on it, um, from investors or anyone else has been, uh, you know, like one of, if not the key to whatever success we've had.
0: Right. Right. So, so give us a sense of, um, Nick, of how big the company is now perhaps uh, products that you have or or orders
1: yeah we did we did uh um nearly 200 million in sales last year uh, so the business has grown dramatically uh we have over half a million members on the platform um so uh uh you know really and those are paid members on the platform um another half a million that are that have gotten free memberships um I think we estimated last year that we, we shipped out something like 25 million, uh, healthy products. Um, yes, 50% of our membership base is in the Midwest and the Southeast. So we're targeting the whole country, not just the, the kind of coastal elites average household income for our members is about $75,000. So we're, we're really having an impact that way. Um, and you know, the other truth is we're just getting started. You know, the, the, like demand is not going to be a problem. Uh, organic uh, grocery is growing at four times the rate of conventional. Um, the shift our e-commerce, everyone is seeing, right? As more and more people want to order these things online. So for us, you know, we feel like it's our game to lose. Uh, when when Amazon bought Whole Foods, uh, I think it was sort of the end of an era in the national organic space. You know, now Whole Foods carries Honey Nut Cheerios and you uh, know is not doing as much innovation on the product side and. Has uh, you know, you know, Amazon Echoes on the shelf. Uh, it's really opened up an opportunity, I think, for us to step into the leadership space in the uh, in, in this world and be the trusted platform for healthy living. So you know, we're we're really happy with the growth that we've had to date, but also you know we see this as the first out of the first inning in many ways, and uh, you know want to build the, the leading platform and the trusted platform for uh, for healthy living. Really cool.
0: And you were talking about this uh, Amazon, so. I mean, they've had tremendous growth, and and you were alluding as well with the acquisition how the space is changing. So, so how do you see e-commerce, uh, you know, as a whole? Kind of like, where, where do you see it going?
1: I mean, I think the where I think we're still in the early stages of e-commerce for consumer packaged goods and and for food specifically. Um, you know, you can see other verticals where, for various reasons, it's been easier for that uh, for the for, for e-commerce to grow. Um, I think, you know. Food is a little bit more complicated, especially perishable food, um, but even even non perishable food, which is, which is what we do. And so I think it's it's been delayed relative to other categories like you know books, electronics, uh, even even fashion to some extent. But I think everything's going to move online. And I think the problems that have delayed the the the, the shift um, are going to be solved. I think they're already being solved. Um, I think the future will still be some hybrid, right? Of of uh, order online, pick up in store, delivery. Uh, or, you know, our full e-commerce kind of model, Um, we don't feel like we have to solve the whole problem, right? Like 45% of what people buy in the grocery store today is non-perishable products. Um, You know, you might want to touch and feel the avocado before you buy it. And and with fresh food, you kind of have to have local local distribution. But for the 45% that's non-perishable, it really should not be coming from a, uh, you know, a grocery store on Main and Main. Uh, the much more efficient model that takes out steps in the supply chain is, is exactly what we're doing. So I think uh, I think the future of non-perishable grocery is going to be something like what Thrive is doing. And then I think the I think the mega trend uh, that is going to uh, uh, really revolutionize a lot of aspects of retail in general, but but e-commerce especially, is conscious consumers. And that's the real bet that we're making: is that uh, consumers want. People want healthier food for themselves, uh, healthier products for themselves, cleaner products than, like with less toxic ingredients, with more ethical supply chains. Um, and they want to be part of uh, a, a community that is aligned in their values. and that's no longer just health for their family, it's also sustainability for the environment and fair trade uh, for 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 workers and for labor. Uh, and real transparency in supply chains, and I think as people look at uh, the you know the, what's happening with climate change, and they look at some of the um, you know, some of the, the political volatility in our world, um, I think a lot of a lot of people are just waking up, and so that that phenomenon of conscious consumption, I think, is going to um, is going to transform the way the food uh, food retail especially works, but also other industries like fashion. Um, and we feel like we're really positioned to be that platform for conscious consumers when it comes to their grocery. Got it.
0: Really cool. Really cool. And, and Nick, this is a question that I always ask the guests. So, I mean, the experience that you have is, is remarkable. So knowing what you know now, let's say if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before you were launching a business, what would that be and why?
1: Oh, I I would give myself some advice, uh, and, but the truth is my, my, my earlier self wouldn't have listened to it. A lot of this stuff you just have to learn. I think the biggest advice I would have given to myself is, um, is to, uh, to be, uh, to be gentle with oneself. Like the path to success is filled with failure. Each of those failures helps you, helps you build the next step. Um, you know, be humble and don't be hard on yourself and take those failures as learning opportunities and know that, um, you know, that if you, if you kind of, if you keep going, if you're resilient and you're kind of headed in the right direction, you can do some really, really big things. And, um, know, I think that that has been the the key to my success and the, uh, and I would say that I give, give one more piece of advice, which would be, um, don't try to do it all yourself either. Right. Um having co-founders has been the game changer in this business. Having great invest- investors and partners has been the game changer in this business. Having mission aligned uh leaders and, and team members has been a game changer in this business. And, you know, like I said, I feel like my job now is chief facilitator. Um, so I've I've learned a lot and I've g- gotten a ton of opportunity and it's um it's been super fun. Uh but and also super challenging. Uh and yeah, now I really feel like uh you know, it's it's where the business is at a stage where it's no longer me driving the value. It's really this amazing team that we put together that's that's driving towards the mission.
0: I agree. I mean, it's like the saying: you can go faster alone, but uh, you can go further uh, when you go together. No, so absolutely, absolutely agree. So, so Nick, what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? uh,
1: I'm not on any social media. <laughs> I would say that's another secret to <laughs> to, uh, to to uh, staying focused. Um, uh, but you know, if people want to shoot me an email, it's, uh, Nick at Thrive Market. Uh, we, uh, if you if you're interested in learning about opportunities at Thrive Market, we, you know the, we have a, a jobs page and we're hiring uh, quickly, especially for talented engineers. Um, and if you're interested in becoming a member, uh, go online, sign up for a trial. You can do 30 days free uh, to see what it's like. We have you know the best natural and organic products on the on the market, and they're at 25 to 50 percent off.
0: Really cool. Well, Nick, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show.